Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. Uh, this is where we bring you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately crave. In whispered tones, even. <laughs> Welcome back. Yeah, this is the Christmas special. So that's why I, I, I brought out the ASMR. Oh, and the best thing about the Christmas special, our gift to ourselves, we don't even need to do a podcast. We're not even, we're barely podcasting yet. <laughs> and that is because we're just playing... The recording for something we recorded, I don't know, a month ago. It was like a month ago, yeah. I mean, it was like it was a great. Pa- we um we we had the you know the inaugural free money SoCap panel, uh, the social capital um thing that you know I guess people do in person usually, but you know it was just a giant online conference. And we pretty much snuck a recorder in and just like you yeah. know we pi- we pirated the SoCap. <laughs> session. This, so welcome to the pirated SoCap session for your enjoyment. <laughs> it's like those Grateful Dead tapes that real hippies like fl- like you throw around of like their. I feel like I had those. Oh, I I, I had I definitely had a couple. I <laughs> saw the Jerry Garcia band. I actually never went to a Dead show, but I did in my youth go to the Jerry Garcia band, which was his electric, wow. his electric guitar ensemble. I'll have you know. Ooh. Oh, holy shit! Well, I'm you know I'm outclassed in all of my deadheadedness and in all, in all dead. Uh... <laughs> he lived here. You know, he lived like not too far from Stanford. You could like go Wait. to this coffee shop and see Jerry Garcia almost like on the daily. Wait, a hippie lived in Northern California. <laughs> Shocking, I know. It's shocking. <laughs> that's unreal. Uh, um, but you know, so that's that's obviously where we drew our inspo from. Yeah, for the for this for this episode, and 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 in, in truth, it was a great a great panel. We had uh, Sean Wooden, the treasurer of of uh, Connecticut. Um, we had Gene Rogers, founder of SASB and uh, formerly of the Long Term Stock Exchange, um, and Darren Dodson, the founder of Lumen Capital, who's I think our best. Or like our most widely listened to episode last year or this year. I think all three were awesome. I, I mean, you know, yeah. the listeners will hear for themselves, but I think all three brought really great perspectives, uh, different perspectives to like the deeper issue of ESG and and how we take ESG forward. ESG feels like the hottest thing in finance right now. And yeah. when you ask people what it is, nobody knows. <laughs> It's like the hottest thing that nobody knows how to define. It reminds me of sovereign funds. In the original incarnation of sovereign funds, everybody's like, oh, shit, sovereign funds. Those are the And you're like, what exactly is a sovereign fund? And they're like, I don't know. CalPERS? <laughs> anyway. Oh, man. I, love, I love this language. I love how like when you ask that question about anything, no one knows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But especially in finance, like, I mean, and, you know, I I guess this has been the year of, you know, vague challenges or, you know, like massive challenges that can't really be addressed anywhere. And so, you know, to the allocator class, like ESG becomes something that you can do. That's kind of a nice thing to add, you know, but, you know, but it's very easy. That's like a recipe for confused action. It is. And so maybe we should just play the tape. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, well, here it is. Uh, and don't say we didn't warn you. This is a freaking great panel. It is. Bye. Bye. This is a, a very special panel. We've got, uh, you know, Ashby, obviously, Treasurer Wooden of Connecticut and Gene Rogers. I guess maybe we could start by you guys all just introducing yourself really quickly. Um, and uh, maybe Darren will get here by the time, uh, by the time we're all done with that. Sure. Ashby, why don't we start with you? Sure. Hello, I'm Ashby. I'm I, I co-host the Free Money Podcast. This is the this is the Free Money Podcast 3D augmented reality. I think is what this is. Um, and so it's fun to be here uh, with an opportunity to do, kind of bring the show live. But uh, in my day job, I run a research center at Stanford, focused on long-term investors and helping them design better investment processes, and then a bunch of stuff outside of that. But that's that's probably the, the most important bit. And then uh, Treasurer Wooden, if you want to go ahead. Yes. Hi, uh, I am the treasurer of the state of Connecticut, and I oversee a 
pension fund of uh, about 38 billion and uh, a host of other responsibilities for the state's fiscal affairs. Um, yeah, so keep it brief. Very cool. And and Jean, how about you? Hi, everybody. Delighted to be here. I'm Jean Rogers, and I am the Chief Resilience Officer of the Long-Term Stock Exchange, where I work with companies to build their resilience uh, and to give them uh, the best possible start in life as they uh, enter the public markets and uh, achieve their long-term visions. Many of you may know me also as the, the founder and the former CEO of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Delighted to be here. Fabulous. I am delighted to be with all of you. And I guess, you know, we'll start in by talking about the sort of bugbear that we have on the Free Money Podcast, which is fiduciary duty and the relatively narrow interpretation of it. Um, and, you know, Treasurer Wooden, you know, you're an attorney in addition to being an elected official. So I guess we should start with you. Uh, um, like, what are you doing here? You know, I mean, like this, we're not trying to justify, we're not trying to make investment returns right, right at the outset. Um, how, do, how does your fiduciary duty relate to these other issues like systemic racism? Sure. So uh, great question and uh, clarification. I am trying to make money right at the outset for our pension fund beneficiaries. And the, uh, and yes, I, I spent 21 years uh, practice in law as an investment lawyer. Um, I represented pension plans in connection with their investments. I advised trustees on fiduciary duties. And um, so that intersections as a fiduciary have to always be mindful and look out for the best interests of beneficiaries. And uh, based on the data that we have available to us today, you know, there's just a wealth of information that shows correlation with uh, diversity, inclusion, um, and higher performance, and correlations between the lack thereof and reduced performance. There are studies uh, when we talk in performance, that's both in terms of companies and long-term shareholder value, that's in terms of our economy and our country. And with respect to the latter, you know, I'd point to a McKinsey study, which uh, showed that we could increase GDP as a nation by 2018, uh, from 2018 to 2028. In that window, if we close racial disparities, we can increase GDP by four to 6%. Um, and that's very powerful. A more recent study, uh, very recent by Citi, uh, shows similar information in terms of the costs in the trillions of racial discrimination and disparities and what that would mean for, for our economy and for growth if we address that. So that is the intersectionality between uh, structural racism and being a fiduciary. And I argue, uh, or one additional data point, you know, an economist from Goldman Sachs you know, has talked about uh, structural racism undermining our economy in the financial markets, right? So there's, there, and there are other studies. So as it relates to me being a fiduciary and an allocator of capital, I argue that the, you know, when, when we know that performance, that there's correlation, and when we see teams that are not diverse, when we have underrepresented groups, what we're doing is we're overlooking higher potential value propositions. What we're also doing is there's a whole opportunity set of managers out there who, um, and when I, when I looked at the top 10 performers in, in my private equity portfolio, uh, four of the top 10 were diverse managers, right? So this is not just theoretical for me. This is also empirically, I'm able to show it. And so as a fiduciary, um, I go the other way and to say, if you don't look at these issues, you're actually not completely fulfilling your duties as a fiduciary. A, a ton of sense to me. And, you know, I, I, as I hear, hear long-term growth of the economy, I start thinking that's a very Gene Rogers sort of topic. Uh, you know, and I wonder, like, you know, you definitely get this question a lot, right? 
um, you're talking about this soft stuff here, uh, where we talk about you know systemic racism. We talk about um, you know all sorts of things. And you know clearly, if if things were more, uh, oh hey, we have a Darren, I think. Um, but uh, if, if things were more equitable, um, the economy would be able to grow from a broader base. Oh my gosh, look at this guy. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hi, Darren. How's it going? Oh, man, really well. Uh, do you want to uh, maybe, uh, I guess, just introduce yourself briefly and then we'll, we'll keep going? <laughs> Darren Dotson, I'm the managing director of Volumen Capital. I also worked with uh, a team of Stanford research scientists, including Dr. Monk, uh, here to publish a paper uh, on implicit bias in asset allocation, showing that the higher black fund managers perform, uh, the more bias that they face. Um, so far, we've closed uh, $85 million and have invested in 10 funds and worked with them over a 10-year period to reduce implicit bias uh, particularly pertaining to race and gender bias and unlock impact and returns. And, you know, we just uh, heard from uh, Treasurer Wooden that four out of nine or four out of 10 of his top uh, PE funds are, are, you know, run by minority led teams, which is, you know, kind of, uh, you know, pretty provocative. Gene, I wonder if you could take us into, into that a little bit, um, sort of from what you're seeing in the, the data. Sure. So I was um, delighted to hear uh, Treasurer Wooden really speaking about and providing the proof points for materiality of these issues. And, and that is uh, something near and dear to my heart and uh, really a topic that I think um, centers um, fiduciary duty uh, on, you know, uh, keeping the eye on achieving these long-term objectives, it really turns on whether these issues are material. And I think we have finally turned the corner in understanding, yes, diversity, equity, inclusion, these issues are material for companies. Companies do outperform. Uh, once you establish that as a fact, and, and I think we do have those facts in addition to what Treasurer Wooden stated, um, you know, an, another very recent study, uh, this one also seems like they're all done by McKinsey, um, but uh, gender diverse companies, 15% more likely to outperform ethnically diverse companies, 35% more likely to outperform. So, you know, more diverse companies, better able to win top talent, uh, you know, better able to serve their customers, reflect their customers, um, better employee satisfaction, better decision-making. All of these things actually contribute to outperformance. That is materiality um, of these issues. Once you establish that, then a whole host of other things open up for you, which is disclosure on these issues and that it is now completely aligned with fiduciary duty. In fact, it is a problem if you don't consider these these issues if they're material and don't take my word for it um take the sec's word for it uh there's a it, it, i i think it was really kind of um didn't really uh hit a spike in the news cycle but for me this is a really big deal so um the sec this summer actually um updated modernized uh, the disclosure requirements under something called Regulation SK, which governs all information that goes to investors like Darren and Sean. And um, they actually acknowledge human capital finally as being a material issue uh, under Regulation SK and modernized um, the disclosure guidance to say uh, companies actually need to disclose uh, human capital and, um, and report it in a way so that it, investors can actually understand what is material. And I think that is a really, really big deal. And I think it's a really, um, it's, it's more edge in the door. The door has really just been pushed open there. I think it's just the starting point. Um, right now, the requirements are simply around um, the numbers of talent, the, the actual workforce, but um, the actual guidance does talk about other types of issues that may be um, material, other types of human capital matters that may be material that companies should be thinking about. Um, and I just have to read to you what 
the chair of the ICC said, these are not my words, the chair of the ICC, we should be jumping up and down about this. He says, Chair Jay Clayton, quote, I cannot remember engaging with a high quality, long lasting company that did not focus on attracting, developing and enhancing its people to the extent those efforts have a material impact on performance, investors benefit from understanding the drivers. I mean, that's, it's extraordinary really coming from the chair of the SEC. And one more point, this is the only, I worked in SASB for a decade defining the materiality of issues in 77 industries, you know, issue by issue, meticulously and painstakingly looking at the evidence for materiality. This is the only one acknowledged to date by the SEC, um, human capital. So I really think we're, we're going to start to see a tremendous amount now of progress once materiality is established. It's a really big deal. That's huge. And, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, say whatever you want about Clayton. Uh, you wouldn't say that he was uh, a huge reformer, um, the, you know, or a huge overreacher of the, of, the, of um, you know, on, on behalf of ESG uh, concerns. Um, Ashby, I'm going to kick to you quickly, then I'm going to bring you in, Darren. Uh, but Ashby, quickly, what the heck even is fiduciary duty? Like, um, is, is this, yeah. like, are people actually interpreting interpreting this in a way or are they just risk averse? No, it's a great question because I feel like I'm always saying the pension funds are, you know, interpreting fiduciary duty too strictly. Well, what do we mean? You know, what do we mean when we say that? So I think it's important to just note that there's, there's probably like five key points of this notion of fiduciary duty. And, and everyone that I say, um, I think you'll think to yourself, that sounds sensible. That sounds good, but I'm gonna I'm gonna get as I tell it to you, Sloan. I'm gonna also give you the practical interpretation that often gets used of fiduciary duty, which limits the innovation and the kind of creativity that happens. The first thing that fiduciary duty says is acting solely in the interest of beneficiaries. That's the first kind of clause, um, which un sounds sensible. We should be focused on beneficiaries' needs. Unfortunately, it often gets interpreted to mean that. We can't think about these long horizon risks to society or environment from our investment strategies. We just have to be laser focused on the needs of beneficiaries. It doesn't matter that those beneficiaries have to live in that society or the environment. We just need to really think about the next clause as well, which is act for the exclusive purpose of providing benefits um, and defray uh, reasonable expenses. So again, we have to focus on benefits only. And unfortunately, what people have thought there is they need to focus on commercial returns only, short-term um, returns that can be quantified financially. The next component of fiduciary duty is uh, to carry out your duties with care, skill, prudence, and diligence of a prudent person. Um, which basically, if you're familiar with the prudent person kind of framing, it's saying don't do anything um, that your neighbor wouldn't do, that your peer wouldn't do, don't be overly creative. Okay, so that's um, marry that with fixing and changing the way these plans invest. The fourth kind of key component of fiduciary duty is to do what the plan documents tell you to do. I don't think we're gonna debate that one. That one seems pretty straightforward. Uh, and then the last one is diversify plan investments. So that's the, the, the kind of don't take too much idiosyncratic risk, company-specific risk. Um, but unfortunately, that gets interpreted as over-diversification. We start to diversify across, you know, countless companies where it becomes very hard to have a voice and influence over those companies. And so the, the kind of summing up of the fiduciary duty legal statute with these different clauses kind of pushes people to less innovation, less creativity, um, overly focused on pure short-run commercial performance um, with too much diversification. Yikes. Uh, Yikes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, like, I, I guess, you know, Darren, I want to go to you. Um, the, like, the last time we had you on the Free Money podcast, it was right after the police murdered George, George Floyd, um, right? And it was a moment of national, uh, you know, conscience, I guess you might call it. Um, and I'm curious, like in the, in the four-ish months since then, how you would characterize whatever progress we've made? 
my my latest reading has been um, kind of imagining a conversation between uh, Schiller, uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist, and uh, narrative economics, and James Baldwin. Um, and uh, you know, you can hear Schiller say that we need a name for every narrative in our economic lives that drive the economic future of many of the large pools of capital that Ashby has just described. And you can hear uh, Baldwin sort of ask, it's very hard to trust what you say when I see what you do. And I think that there's been a lot of uh, talk, there's been a lot of statements. We were in uh, Funfire earlier this week talking specifically about university endowments, president statements, and, um, and I think the word um, fiduciary duty, of course, comes to mind as, as Ashby laid out, but also the word integrity comes to mind, the distance between what we say and what we do. And I think that that um, in the periods of time that Schiller reflects on is really lost in terms of the rubber banding of the separation between what we say and what we do in terms of the public statements and the lack of follow-up within the institutions that deploy capital and the capital pools in which they deploy. And as, as has been said, that's a detriment to um, certainly pensioners, uh, but also all aspects of asset allocation that we seek to have optimal performance you know, within our study um, that we uh, that we published, one of the most alarming findings to me is that black fund managers were artificially discounted um, at the highest end of performance, specifically uh, in their ability to execute on their track, the ability to execute on their strategy, the ability to um, raise capital. And if we see a black face and a white face, and the only thing we change is the track record, I mean, the only thing that we change is the face and not the track record, then part of what becomes uh, the, the challenge there is that we automatically imagine that people would uh, somehow underperform without any other information other than race. So we have a, a major problem within the leadership of asset allocation pools across the country and around the world that we're underperforming, overlooking, and underestimating fund managers of color. And I think that that's a problem for about $35 trillion in undervalued assets that could be managed by uh, a pool of the brightest and um, uh, you know women and people of color in the world that haven't been given a shot. Um, we also note that it's not a pipeline problem. We note that um, for many years, uh, 40 years of emerging manager programs and so trying to solve this problem through a tributary of the river of finance. Um, we haven't gotten there. And what we need is actual mainstream pools of capital uh, to flow in more optimal ways to create transformation in our in our industry and in our world. I mean, that sounds great. And, you know, Treasurer Wooden, you run a, a large mainstream pool of capital. Um, and I know that you've been active in pushing for uh, greater racial diversity on corporate boards from you know a, a year or more ago. Um, I wonder if you could take us inside that work, how that's looked from your seat, and because I know we're going to lose you in a, in a, in a couple of minutes. I, I wonder if you'd also touch on your uh, you know your view on the emerging manager pro, uh, program as well. Sure. Um, all right, I'm going to try to cover a lot quickly. Hang on. Um, <laughs> So diversity and inclusion has been a, an important part of my work and, and my office's work for some time. And last October, we launched the Northeast uh, Investors Diversity Initiative. And this is focused on corporate board diversity for companies headquartered in the Northeast. And just I think it was just last week, we put out a one-year report on that effort and this is very much a constructive engagement, um, how-to playbook manual resources, um, and you know about 300 billion in capital represented by the coalition of investors. Um, and we just reported uh, nine uh, companies have added diverse uh, board members 
uh, in that one year period of time, another three companies, they've made uh, amendments to their bylaws with respect to their boards on this point. And so good start, good, good progress, uh, a lot more work to do, which we're doing in as part of other coalitions like the 30% coalition as well. Um, with respect to uh, since uh, the, what I'll call, you know, I call our modern day Emmett Till moment in America, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, the, since then, I uh, issued a call to action for uh, corporations to get off the sideline and to become uh, part of the fight against uh, systemic racism in our country. Uh, that led to a host of conversations with CEOs and who, you know, this in the conversation, similar to what Darren was pointing out is like, I want to have real conversations about real structural reform, systemic for the long term. We have to address police uh, reform, uh, but we have to go so much further than that effort in looking at racial economic disparities educational disparities, housing disparities, the full gamut. As a result of that, you know, I'm pleased to report, and I did try to ferret out those who were just doing, putting out statements for corporate branding purposes, or this has become the new thing to do and saying, look, you know, what I'm talking about is at least a 10, a 10 year commitment in terms of the work. Um, as a result of that, I've convened, a, I call it my coalition of the willing, but not the perfect, um, of about 15 CEOs as part of a working group. And these are all, you know, market makers large, you know, they represent more than 360,000 employees across the country, 460 billion in market capitalization and, uh, over 21 trillion in assets under management and engaged in a conversation that's one in the mirror. Like, what are you going to do to change your institution from boardrooms, C-suites, to entry level and everything in between in terms of diversity and inclusion. And just as important is I need you to look out the windows at these issues of disparities in America and how we can close gaps, how we can provide access to capital uh, to communities that have been marginalized, um, you know, businesses and otherwise. And that work is underway. And I'm doing that uh, with the Ford Foundation and I'm thrilled to have them uh, come on board to partner in this work um, and uh, McKinsey Consulting. Um, it's not announced yet, or I guess it is right now. Uh, we'll be coming on board uh, to help us with this work as well. Um, and the last thing I'd like to touch upon, which is you mentioned emerging manager programs. So two things. I do believe that emerging manager programs done right, um, and that's a critical piece done right. Um, is beneficial as as a growth vehicle and emerging diverse as as well, right? And then they're not not the same, but there's often a lot of one. You know, going back to being a fiduciary, you know, you, you have to look at emerging talent generally, right? And to just kind of tap that that next that next generation of superstar outperformers in the market. Um, two. It is a systemic way to address systemic and institutional bias that has ex excluded looking at uh, certain uh, groups of managers. Um, and three, one of the important things that I've done this year, Connecticut has had a program for some time, but I've tried to take the learning over the past 15 years of our program and uh, best-in-class programs from uh, other parts of the country to say there's got to be a growth in a pathway because the, the, the goal is not to stay in a, in a quarantine of an emerging diverse manager bucket, but to develop a direct relationship with me as the allocator and as an LP. And so I have built in stages of growth. So we will grow with you. Um, and, and, and the idea is for you to graduate to a direct relationship with us, but because of you know, our parameters on investments, we can't be more than 20% the size of, you know, a commingled investment fund, other parameters. We need a vehicle to get to, to those, um, those emerging 
uh, managers that are just kind of coming onto the scene. But uh, equally as important, or perhaps more importantly, is every manager that comes through my office, we're looking at the diversity profile. We believe that it is a fundamental part of just like, you know, ESG is very important to us um, in looking at the total picture. So when I look at the diligence report and, you know, for Connecticut, so I'm, there are three treasurers in the country who are sole trustees. So I'm one of them, right? And when I get that diligence report, it's not just about past performance and the metrics and the management team description. It also tells me about the diversity program, uh, profile, the, uh, ESG analysis of the firm in their considerations. So it's a very holistic assessment. And so outside of an emerging managers program, you know, my message to everyone we do business with is that uh, di diversity and inclusion has value that translates into dollars and cents. And as a fiduciary, I want to make sure you're not overlooking that and that that gets incorporated into what you do. And so, um, and recently, uh, this is earlier this week, maybe, I lose track of time, uh, just uh, allocated another billion to, uh, to our emerging managers program and still have a lot more to do in that area. Well, I mean, yes, that's a great answer. And, you know, it feeds right into my next question, as you might predict, given that this is a panel. But first, I want to thank you, uh, uh, Treasurer Wooden, uh, for, for taking the time to, to be with us today. Um, thank you. And thank to, thanks to the wonderful panelists. You're all doing amazing work. Uh, keep it up. And yeah, I mean, I, and uh, for those of you who are in the audience, I want to mention that I don't want to hog the panel. So if you have any uh, questions you want me to ask that are, uh, you know, that I'm not asking, please, by all means. Um, but, you know, I want to say, Ashby, um, you know, the answer to so many of the questions that we ask as an institutional investment kind of family or community, um, get, get answers that are like, well, it's a matter of time, you know, uh, or mm. these sort of incremental answers in general. Is that stuff that, that we as a community are well conditioned to hearing? It's a matter of time. I, I feel like <clears throat> what I often hear is it's not our job. Like in the world of asset owner beneficial investors, right? We're, we're trying to help the LPs. We're trying to help the sovereign funds and the pension funds just be better at their jobs. What I often hear is it's not our job to innovate. We pick the innovative managers and it's their job to kind of bring that innovation to us. And so, you know, just waiting, I, I don't have like the patience anymore to just wait for these institutions to um, innovate. I, I also don't have the, the patience for like the perfect product to arrive on their doorstep. You know, these organizations were, were designed to be conservative. Um, innovation was seen as a bug not a feature. Uh, the fiduciary duty that we talked about already, the prudent person rule. We, we also forget that many of the big LPs in the world are monopolies. They own the right to manage the capital of that plant. Stanford Management Company will be managing Stanford Endowment for a very long time. The people will swap out, but the organization and its right to manage that capital remains. And that creates a whole series of very strange incentives inside these organizations where the employees know that there's really not much they can do to destroy that right, you know, the right to manage the capital, but they can do something to get fired. Um, they can, and so I have a saying, like the only way you get in, you get fired from the pension space is if you innovate. Um, and so when we think about, you know, how much time do we need to take here before this kind of shifts to a world where the asset owners are prioritizing um, racial diversity and manager selection and, and hiring, like we need to trigger the innovation through a series of initiatives that reveal, like we did with the paper, Darren and I, the extent to which this crisis is ongoing so that the boards of directors can't sit back and do what they were doing last year um, for the next 10 years. Because the way we've designed the funds, what they were doing is what they are doing is what they will be doing. And somehow we need to break that 
um, that cycle of status quo through the type of work and the type of panels that we're doing right now. You know, it's it's funny. Um, the, you know, there's sort of a magic to a panel where you get to Darren earlier a concept that I want Gene to respond to. Uh, this hypothetical notion of the James Baldwin Bob Schiller conversation, where James Baldwin says, "I hear what you say, but I see what you do." Um, you know, and like that's such a fascinating thing. It, you know, it brings to mind this this question of like, how long should we give corporations to do and disclose the right stuff? Um, and are there, is there any other way for us to hold their feet to the fire than by just forcing them to disclose? This another topic. Oh, sorry. Um, hear you. Oh, never mind. Yeah, I should be. You good? I'm, am I good? I, I hear like you. I hear okay, you. Okay. So um, I'm just a real pro at this. Okay. <laughs> I was just so stunned by the question. It just took me a minute or two. Uh, I, disclosure is, you know, obviously another topic that is just right there. Um, and I think actually that there's been too much focus on on disclosure when it comes to the things that really matter. You know, everybody everybody knows that what gets measured gets managed, right? Um, not in the ESG field. What, what gets measured gets disclosed, and that's about it. it. It There's been so much intensity and the volume of, of disclosure on all of the issues of the, on, under the sun and so many calls for transparency. That, that was a really good thing 20 years ago when we did not have transparency. But now that we have a lot, a lot of transparency, companies are no longer managing those things. So disclosure is not a proxy for performance. It's not a, a, a good correlation with intention or outcomes. And I think that is what we have to get to. Um, you asked, you know, how long which should we wait? Well, let's see. The, the business roundtable uh, uh, companies came out with their big proclamation about stakeholder capitalism a little bit more than a year ago, I think. Uh, it is more than a year ago now. And, um, you know, it's still, it's still really crickets, you know, waiting to, to hear that. And actually what we heard is um, around the time of, of uh, George Floyd and, and the sort of, you know, um, uh, the, the crisis, uh, the, the awakening around that moment, companies started saying, oh, okay, yeah, we actually need to start doing something. We're going to listen. I'm like, wait a minute. Is, is your is your answer and and I do understand the importance of listening listening is very important but listening without action is certainly not enough and we shouldn't certainly shouldn't wait a year so it doesn't it disclosure is not the answer we need we have disclosure uh, we need to get to intention um, listening is not the answer forever we need you may not know the right answer. Nobody does. These are complex, long-term issues. I love that Treasurer Wooden said a decade. We're talking absolutely. Um, we've been working on these issues. We, we've had these issues structurally for so long. They're not going to get accomplished in a quarter or in an annual report or 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 um, through listening, certainly. So um, we need these long-term commitments um, for companies to make. And uh, the only way that we're going to see the outcomes as if it's tied to incentives, not tied to disclosure. A recent, a recent study um, that looked at how many companies, you know, this year actually tied uh, diversity um, uh, incentives to um, executive pay found that uh, they studied 3,000 of the largest companies and only 2%, only like 78 companies actually tied diversity requirements to um, executive comp, to some portion of executive comp. If you want anything done in business, you have to tie it to incentives. You have to align incentives. So this is, why should this be any different? We, we we have to start seeing that through line, that connection from pay uh, to the performance that, that we're looking for. And still, so few companies have, have made that shift. So um, I, I think that's a, 
that's the, the, the connection. It, it's not disclosure. And, and I think institutional investors fall into this trap of using their power or, or diluting their power by, by asking for disclosure when they could ash, actually be asking for tying, um, performance to, to incentives and, and really looking for the outcomes that we want on, on diversity and not just disclosure of, of the status quo. Great. Oh, sorry. I was going to see if we could get it going here. I was going to uh, respond to Gene a little bit. So I, I totally love the notion that it's incentives, not disclosure. The, the challenge that I have is in the world of the beneficial investors, which are often kind of sitting in complex administrative bureaucracies like a government, it's really hard to build incentives like I'm not talking about the company disclosure. I'm talking about the on the investor side. It's hard to build incentives that push people to break out and and start prioritizing these issues. And so, in in the asset owner world, I couldn't tell you um, what percent of managers are people of color at a given endowment or foundation or pension fund. I have no clue because it's not disclosed. And at the same time, I can't build an incentive structure for a, a portfolio manager at a public pension plan because the, the government rules around contracting don't allow me to design a really kind of thoughtful incentive structure to prioritize these issues. So I totally buy what you're saying on the company side. On the investor side, I don't know how we do anything other than use disclosure, in part because I don't think we're disclosing it today. I think Darren might have some ideas on that. Um, the, <laughs> I, I, I think. Uh, thank you for adding the. For I mean, I, I guess I misquoted James Baldwin earlier, but that's such a powerful yes. quote. I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. Um, I, I wonder if you if you could sort of uh, you know take on this this question of what else, but then also you know you just raised a fund right, which indicates that to some degree there's a window open for working on this, um, and I'm curious. Yeah you know, how long you feel like that window's been open? So I, I think time's up, right? So it's been 52 years since Martin Luther King was killed. Um, if you haven't figured out that we're losing tremendous value in 2020, um, you know, after uh, uh, programs to solve this problem have been in place for over 50 years, um, you know, we're, we're missing something big. So to Ashby's point, we have to have innovation. Um, and to Gene's point as well, we have to have innovation. We have to try new and different things because what we've tried in the past has not gotten us there. If we were playing a basketball game and we went out, we looked at the scoreboard and it was uh, 69 to 1, um, we would feel like we were failing. And the asset management business and relating to achieving outsized returns and uh, finding the women and people of color that are producing those returns, the corporations that speak like they um, have solved this problem, but their senior leadership uh, supply chains, their, um, their uh, entire uh, value chains are, 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 are white, um, you know, they have to try something differently and drive change. Part of the reason why this exists in context is that as the asset management business is a, a vestige of slavery, lynching, mass incarceration, the burning down of Black Wall Streets across the country, and the country's unwillingness to deal with some of the real um, uh, atrocities and come to terms with the fear associated with investing in and overcoming the biases related to the way that we uh, subconsciously and consciously perceive other people. That's been well documented within Dr. Eberhard's book, Biased, which I highly recommend, uh, where she systematically moves through school systems, criminal justice systems, by the way, uh, supported by public finance, uh, you know, asset management business creature. Uh, and then also moving through um, the, the lending business, which is where I got my start looking at and working with 60 attorneys to systematically pass laws to stop banks from 
overcharging uh, Black and Latino homeowners and the biggest financial decision that many make in their lives. The number one way in which Black and Latino people reach the middle class is through home ownership. And we found $9.1 billion in fees that were overcharged only because they were Black and Latino. So that is a systematic extraction of the American dream that went unexamined and uh, unaddressed for um, you know, 50 or so years while we were trying to think about um, you know, kind of uh, you know, the programs that were designed to fix this problem. So we're in a need of dire innovation. Um, as you can see, people's voices are in the streets all around the country uh, facing um, the, the system that upstream leads to a 6.69, of $69 trillion managed by women and people of color that sends ripples and metastasizes throughout the financial system in ways that uh, destroy the possibility of hope. Part of what um, I would tie this to is this is one of the highest years of black youth suicide at the high school level in the entire in, in, in history. Um, and as we look at Michael Lindsay's work at the NYU, um, we have to ask the question of what do people see as a future um, growing up in this country? And, and yes, we'd love for them to be able to go to school and be reinforced through their self-esteem. But if we don't get ed tech right, if we don't get FinTech right, if we don't get the environmental interventions that we're building right that lead to things like what happened in Flint, Michigan, we're systematically destroying the future ideas that will lead to the solutions to these challenges. So we have a, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, that as, you, as you were talking, I mean, I was just like, how can anybody believe anything else, right? Um, you know, and I think, you know, Ashby, you're sort of our token uh, white cisgender man here. Um, and uh, I, I wonder, I mean, first we can just all glare at you for a second for that, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, how, how do, how do y'all talk when it's just, when it's just the, you know, you're just among yourselves about this? You know, it's, it's funny when you, um, you've raised this in the past with me and unfortunately I've been to many, many um, asset management conferences that are all people, all white people, you know, like looking out at that a hundred people. And, um, the, the sad answer to your question is we don't talk about it. it it's, we are unsuspecting and we are unwittingly contributing. And it's not like when you're sitting in a room, you know, there's no smoke filled room where we're plotting to maintain our hegemony. At least I've never been in that one. Um, but it, it's, a it's a willing, to ignore the issue and pretend it doesn't exist. I can remember about six years ago, maybe five years ago, a lot of the people I worked with say, I will no longer do panels with only men. Um, it, we need to have gender diversity. I have yet to hear any kind of a sentiment like that around racial diversity. Um, and, and I feel like and it, it's similar to those types of, you know, beliefs, like I don't join panels without a woman on there. Um, you know, I don't go, I think we should all just say, I don't go to conferences without a diverse, you know, attendee base. Um, so, so the answer to your question, Sloan, I'm really sad to say is it doesn't come up Yeah, or it hasn't come up. Yeah. Which I mean, geez, I, I think, I think we have a question, uh, from the audience Let's see if I can do this right. Uh, oh, sweet. Well, I broke it. I broke it again. That's great. Uh, the, uh, I, you know, technology is really, really easy. Um, Gina, like, let's go to you. I, you know, I think like, um, we're talking about shifting perception, shifting the way that we think of these very big, deep problems. Um, to what degree is it reasonable to expect, uh, you know, a market side shift will happen as a result of this, right? Um, like, how would you t expect, you know, I mean, you're working with the long-term stock exchange. If, if people start thinking more long-term with their, uh, with their investments and, you know, kind of taking these sort of racial uh, topics um, and, and really integrating them, what changes? Well, I think 
for for me on the on the market in the market the capital market sort of thinking about what leverage you know the buy side has and thinking about how um how ESG you know as a as a trend um really took off over the past decade and 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 went from uh, being implemented by a few socially responsible investors to really becoming mainstream State streets and the Black Rocks and the Vanguards and the Fidelities, um, and 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 driven, of course, by owner demand and UMPRI. That um, that sort of pathway, you know, it took it took decades to mainstream ESG. You know, from the time when we had a few socially responsible investors practicing that, actually, back in the seventies. Um, to really mainstreaming, you know, in, you know, somewhere between, you know, 10 to 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Um, and so the question is, do we have the time, you know, for it to take that same pathway where, you know, where we have a few small group of committed people and we, and we, and, and we, um, we, put the right um, owner demand in place, we prove the materiality, then we have the asset managers doing what the owners, you know, are looking for. Um, I think this is both, this is more urgent um, and we have learned lessons from that pathway. We know what that pathway looks like. So maybe we can accelerate that here. And it really does come back to the owners, um, the managers, look to the owner mandates and then they run that money and they they innovate, the managers innovate um, to be able to produce that performance um, that they are that they are looking for. But this is this is so much more urgent and I'm just struck by how little change, as Darren was saying, that we have um, that we have seen. Uh, just my my daughter who is a freshman in high school now schooling virtually like everyone was reading part of her freshman lit class a raisin in the sun and analyzing it and writing an essay on it we were talking about that and of course i read that in high school and many of you also did um because it was written in 1959 and i was reading it and it was eerie and i was getting i was like this could have been written a couple of weeks ago and that is how that is how devastating the um, effects are of systemic racism and um, intergenerational trauma. It, it's just, it's, it's devastating. And that is, we are still experiencing this. So what's different now, and Ashby, to bring it back to investing, <laughs> away from high school, <laughs> freshman oh, literature. Yeah, okay, so, but let's uh, bring it home here, Ashby. So what I think is incredibly interesting right now in this moment that institutional investors are beginning to understand the relationship between specific risk or idiosyncratic risk and systemic risk. And we investors are beginning to understand that climate risk, not our topic, but still out there, um, and uh, inequality and these issues are systemic risks that actually um, have massive potential to um, uh, to um, negatively impact portfolios, but our entire uh, our entire market system, capital markets. Um, the relationship between specific risk and systemic risk was was always treated as uncorrelated and managed differently, and you could diversify. Away, diversify away specific risks, as, as Ashby said, um, just as long as you have more than 25 stocks, you don't really have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about what companies are doing because everyone's diversified. Modern portfolio theory, right, was great for investing. It was terrible for systemic issues like climate change and inequality um, because it decoupled how you manage those types of risks. We're beginning again to understand these are connected. What companies do, what they externalize, how they impact inequality, how they impact climate risk is contributing en masse to systemic risk. And we actually need to care what happens at the company level. We cannot any longer, if we ever could, rely on modern portfolio theory to diversify those risks and not worry about it, um, the systemic risk. So they are in fact connected and we're beginning to understand that. And that is actually where the innovation needs to happen because I don't know how to manage that other than to 
look at the outcomes. Ashby, tell us what we're going to do. Look, I I loved absolutely everything you said. In fact, it made me remember like in, in finance, diverse portfolios are so homogenous, right? It's, it's like, you know, people in the real world would be shocked at how non-diverse a diversified portfolio actually is because it allows you to just give it away. Oh, the market will take care of these risks. We don't need to manage it proactively. And unfortunately, the market is a set of institutions designed over the course of 100 years, and they favor a certain type of people. So um, I, I want to keep hearing Darren and you talk more than me. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. You, you know, yeah, we have a great tactical question in the comments uh, on, on the side that I'd, I'd love to get Darren your view on. And then uh, to the extent that everyone else wants to respond to it, um, you know, basically, how do we how do we make sure we're not preaching to the converted, right? Um, or put another way, how do we make sure that we're effective advocates of change uh, to the extent that we that we can use the seats we're in to, to change the world we live in? I think that's, uh, yeah, I'll use another James Baldwin quote here. Um, and this is James Baldwin in The Fire Next Time kind of talking to his nephew and saying um, of, of, of many people that wish they would be a part of uh, creating change, um, many, many white people is who he's specifically speaking to. To act is to be committed uh, and to co- be committed is to be in danger. And I think the, the danger may be uh, misunderstood. He goes on to say that the greatest danger is the um, reimagining of one's own identity, which is a really, you know, kind of profound point. But I think the point is um, that if 1% of $69 trillion is, is being managed by women and people of color, then the converted aren't converted, in my opinion. So the, the really hard thing, old buddy, like James Baldwin would say, um, is to realize that um, those that keep the system the way it is without doing anything are working actively against the way the system can become. Um, so unless we are proactive, those of us that are converted, in calling our asset managers, calling our university endowments, and um, creating the pressure necessary to take a risk, and it's risk-adjusted return, right? You don't get return if you don't take risk, which is Ashby's done his PhD in that area uh, for sovereign wealth funds and pension funds. So a part of what we're saying is that this is an area where it's safe to take risk. And yes, there is some risk associated with it, but what we found systematically, right, to Gene's point about systematic risk, systematically asset allocators, 180 of them that manage over a uh, uh, trillion dollars in capital chose with the exact same information, white-led firms almost every single time. So what that means is if we can figure out how to change that artificial, ar- arbitrageable um, vehicle that devastates the returns of impact investing in the broader financial markets to what they could be to achieve a more prosperous world, then, uh, you know, there, there is something that we can continue to do, even as woke folk, um, in order to push these levers forward. And there are people that are, are doing great work, but look at the scoreboard. Um, if Mom, Muhammad Ali said, I die every day in the gym so I don't get beat up in the ring, our practice is it's, it's not enough. That's why we spend 10 years with our managers reducing implicit bias and giving our investors a pathway to do the same with their entire portfolios who currently control over a trillion dollars in capital. So we've got to get better at practice so that when we get out there into that 1.3% of $69 trillion to compete, that we have the best tools uh, necessary to execute. My final quick thought on this is that if we knew that AI and machine learning were a growth industry, We'd spend billions of dollars in R&B and R&D creating the tools necessary to capture that market. We take risk on managers that were just starting to pioneer that field because we felt like there were billions of dollars behind them. What we see within our uh, 
you know, firm's stance and our research is that there's $35 trillion in undervalued assets that are undermanaged because women and people of color are systematically overlooked and underestimated within the asset management business. So if that's true, what is the appropriate amount of capital to allocate to innovate against that massively, uh, massive latent value within the economic markets? And if we can figure, you know, I don't, I don't think it takes a genius to figure out that it's big and that there should be a whole lot more money creating the transformation and innovation in order to solve those challenges. I, I think um, absolutely. It's something with something with a trillion, right? Um, I guess uh, Gene and then and then Ashby, if we don't get cut off because we're right at the end. Uh, any any final parting thoughts for folks? We have. I also just want to say, you know, we have some great literary illusions. Uh, you know, Darren, you're, uh, you know, we have a proposal for James Baldwin talks impact investing next year, uh, which I friggin' love. Also, Gene's Raisin in the Sun has some fan, has some fans. Uh, <laughs> You know, and, you know, I guess it's unfortunate that we're talking so much about folks who are um, publishing, like, I don't know, 60 years ago, uh, 60, 70 years ago, you know, that the problems are so intractable as all that. Um, but yeah, I guess we're at time. Um, and, you know, so I'll say thank you guys to the, thank you to Ashby, to Gene, to Darren, to Treasurer Wooden, and to all of you who are watching, uh, listening, um, me, me and my pile of laundry hidden under this uh, this little thing are very grateful to all of you. I'm looking like money, 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 money,